Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You're invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Today's scripture reading is Luke 22:54-65. So they arrested him and led him to the high priest's home, and Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally she said, This man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, You must be one of them. No, man, I'm not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, This must be one of them, because he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard, weeping bitterly. The guards in charge of Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and said, Prophecy to us, who hit you that time? And they hurled all sorts of terrible insults at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was 1996. The underground jump blues and swing and neo-lounge movement was starting to rise to the surface thanks to movies like Swingers and that Gap Khakis commercial where they used a Matrix-style bullet camera technology to be able to capture like a circular view of a couple swing dancing. My wife Amy and I really enjoyed dancing. And I knew a little bit about how to lead, and because we were younger and more agile at the time, we would try some of the flips and aerials and things like that that went along with swing dancing. And we were pretty good for people who really didn't know what we were doing. I was doing a lot of DJ work on weekends, and I would sometimes do swing night events at that time. And my buddy was covering one at a place called Lafayette Club but Amy and I wanted to come out and dance. We were going to cut the rug, and we were out there just tearing it up, tearing it up on the floor, having a blast. We were feeling pretty good, working up a sweat. Amy, I'm pretty sure her feet at one point touched the, uh, the lights that were up above on the rafters, and so we were, we were swinging really seriously with our dance moves. And at a certain point, we just worked ourselves up enough that we had to, had to head down to the bar to get something to drink. And so on the way down, the woman who was working at the counter on the way into the dance floor stopped us and gave us a compliment. She said, you two are pretty good. And I smiled and proudly said, thanks, never had a lesson. And as I was about to walk down the stairs towards the bar, I did one of those and tripped and fell down almost immediately. It was a little bit like I was being put back in my place. Sometimes our pride gives us a nice big dose of humility, and sometimes we don't get it, even when the lesson is right there in front of us. Author Kent Crockett tells a story about a Sunday school class when a teacher read for the children about the Pharisees and the tax gatherer that were praying together in the temple. And the teacher told how the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, while the tax gatherer said, 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. And the teacher explained how the pious, self-righteous attitude of the Pharisee caused him to look down on the tax gatherer. And at the end of the class, the teacher asked one little boy to close in prayer, and that little boy prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee. That's the kind of pride that we're talking about. Not the kind of pride where I'm pleased that my kids are growing into their potential. It's the kind of pride where maybe I start to list their accomplishments so I can live vicariously through them and start to take credit for their successes. That's more the type of pride that we're talking about. Pride, also known as hubris or conceit. Put simply, pride is the sin of thinking too much of ourselves or thinking of ourselves too much. And pride is the parent of all the other sins. Pride is the parent of all the other sins. Pride is the ultimate temptation in our hearts that says, even if there is a God, I must be wiser. Even if there's a God, I must be wiser. Back in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't the sin of eating the fruit that caused humanity to fall. That was the outcome. It was Adam and Eve believing the serpent when he said that God was holding back and that he could not be trusted. And if they disregard God, their rebellion could make them as wise as the creator of the universe. Maybe you've heard the proverb, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. Pride literally came before the fall. And a proud spirit precedes much of the destruction that befalls our lives as well. If you want to come tumbling down like a ton of bricks quickly, all we have to do is start boasting about ourselves. Christians don't believe in instant karma, but it is amazing how quickly our situations can yank our pride rugs right out from underneath us. It happened to Simon Peter. When they were gathered at the Passover meal we've discussed for the past couple of weeks, Jesus was describing all that was about to take place. And Simon Peter's mouth is moving faster than his mind and certainly faster than his heart in this situation. And Jesus is speaking here in Luke chapter 22. He's saying, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to have all of you to sift you like wheat. But I've pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen and build up your brothers. And Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison for you, even to die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. The rooster will not crow tomorrow morning until you have denied three times that you even know me. Peter said he was ready to go to prison, ready to die. And all we have to do is fast forward a little bit and we see some of that bravado coming about. In Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 51, the mob was approaching led by Judas who had betrayed Jesus and he went to greet Jesus with a kiss. And Jesus said, Judas, how can you betray me, the Son of Man, with a kiss? And when the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought swords and one of them slashed the high priest's ear. And Jesus said, don't resist. And he touched the place where the man's ear had been and healed him. And in John 18.10, we realize that that sword-swinging disciple is Peter. He came ready to brawl. He was going to scrap with the temple guards. They were coming for his boy, and he wasn't about to let that happen. Never mind that Jesus promised it had to go down like this, See, Simon knew better than Jesus did. 
At least he thought he did. Simon Peter didn't like what Jesus was saying, so he decided to go in a different direction. And that takes us to our first lesson. Pride wants to stay in control of the situation. Pride wants to stay in control of the situation. So they arrested Jesus and led him to the high priest's home, and Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. I've spent a fair amount of time around grieving people. It doesn't matter if they're grieving the loss of a loved one or just a change in a situation that causes discontinuity in their lives. Grieving people will often, at some point, find some minuscule thing and lock into controlling it. When life feels like it's in chaos and in disarray and we don't know what solid ground looks like anymore, our natural flesh response is to find something to control. If you want to know how stressed out my life is at any given time, for example, all you have to do is ask my kids how often I bark at them to pick up their stuff from the floor. It's because grief is difficult like that and pride is a tyrannical little god. Pride demands control. We've recently faced a pandemic that has claimed over 500,000 American lives and has sickened countless more. And if you want to talk about people who have gone out of their way and out of their minds to uphold the illusion of control, this season has shown us plenty of that. Hubris can look a lot like denying the impact of a deadly illness because it challenges the idea that we can control every aspect of our lives. Sometimes events come along that remind us we're not as in control as we think we are. Pride rebels against that reminder. Peter wanted to have everything under his control this night. He wanted to argue with Jesus about what was going to happen. He wanted to fight this plan of Jesus, this perfect surrender of his fearless friend was messing up everything. He thought he knew what to do when the heat turned up. And Jesus kept on messing it up. Peter can't talk him out of it. He can't use a sword to protect him. What's left for Peter? It's uncertainty and fear. And enough courage, at least, to follow from a distance. But we're about to see what comes of all that courage. That's our second lesson. Pride clings to its own life and loses it in the process. Pride clings to its own life and loses it in the process. Verse 56, a servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, man, I am not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Peter was recognizable. He was just seen with Jesus with a sword cutting off a guard's ear. If they had wanted posters at that time, then Peter would have found his face on one immediately. The temple guards had bigger fish to fry at the moment, however. They weren't in the garden to go after middle management. They were there for the big guy. It didn't mean Jesus' disciples were off the hook, though. 
with movements like these, and there were a string of these would-be messiahs that were being shut down by the temple guards and the Roman authorities over the years. But with these movements, you start with the figurehead, and then you move to wipe out any resistance that is foolish enough to persist. And so Peter couldn't just put on some Clark Kent glasses and disappear or anything. There's another part that he couldn't hide, his accent. He was from Galilee, and the difference between the Hebrew spoken in Jerusalem and the Hebrew spoken in Galilee was the difference between Yankee English and Southerner English. There was a noticeable accent that would have given Peter away with each protest that he voiced. People were gathered from all around at this time for the Passover, and so maybe this story holds up. He was Galilean, just decided to hang out in the courtyard of the high priest in the same night. He looked like that guy from Jesus' group, but it was dark. It was only lit by the fire. Maybe, maybe that's a plausible excuse. So Peter works it to save his own hide. I don't know him. I'm not one of them. I don't know what you're talking about. He's not saying this about some fellow that he picked up hitchhiking who was just released from lockup. This, this was his best friend. This man who just moments before he said he would die for. This is the man who Peter declared to be the Messiah sent from God. He knew all this, and to save his own sorry life, Peter was denying even knowing who Jesus is. Peter was there as a student when Jesus taught his disciples in Luke 17, whoever clings to his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will save it. And now Peter is clinging desperately to his life, and it brings him closer than he knows to spiritual death. And Jesus sees right through him. That's our third lesson. Jesus sees right through us. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. You will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard, weeping bitterly. The guards in charge of Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and said, Prophesy to us, who hit you that time? And they hurled all sorts of terrible insults at him. I love the Alison Krauss version of When You Say Nothing at All. You might be familiar with the song. The smile on your face lets me know that you need me. The truth in your eye tells me you'll never leave me. The touch of your hand says you'll catch me whenever I fall. You say it best when you say nothing at all. I have to do it with a little bit of that Alison Krauss drawl. A lot can be conveyed without words. Moms can give death stares to kids who are acting up in public when it's inappropriate to yell, but it still gets the message across, doesn't it? There are certain looks that can convey adoration and intimacy. Jesus didn't need any more words in this instance. He just looked at Peter as this proud, stumbling man did exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. And Jesus, this Messiah that Peter loved, gave a look that crushed Peter's spirit. Peter had failed. All of his pride and great intentions, they all failed, crashed and burned, send in the clowns. Sometimes I have walks and chats with Jesus. And though I don't get to see him face to face quite yet, I picture us walking together. 
And maybe I'm spending too much time trying to pretend I'm in control of my situation or I don't acknowledge my absolute reliance upon my God. Maybe pride is rearing up its ugly head in my life. And then I can hear this quiet voice speaking to me that doesn't condemn. It's this quiet voice that corrects. It's always gracious. But there are times when it, it seems like Jesus would just grab me by the face and look into my eyes. And that glance would be enough to drop me to my knees. I don't know if I'd stare back or if I'd look away like a dog that's ashamed because it just chewed something that it knew it wasn't supposed to. So much perfect love in those eyes. and So much imperfect failing in mine. So much pride. So much of me. And so little of him. Can you see Jesus' eyes this morning? He won't condemn. He's not giving the death stare or even a disappointed look. He's looking at you with perfect love. He sees our messes, our stresses, and our hurts. He sees our mistakes, our pride, and how much we've made of ourselves, how we deny him, and he knows what that gets us now and eternally. Pride struck with the sword, stood by and stumbled as Jesus was taken to trial before his execution. And pride absolutely kills Christ in our lives too. But that takes us to lesson four this morning. Humility is the death of pride. Humility is the death of pride. The Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Philippi, reminding them of what it is to have the mind of Christ saying, don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't think only about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they are doing. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death upon a cross. And because of this, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." This is the humility that Christ plants in our lives. C.S. Lewis writes that true humility is not thinking less of ourselves. We are created in the image and likeness of the Most High God. It's not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. If you want to know how highly favored you are, you need look no further than the love Jesus showed us on the cross. But it also means that despite our stubborn pride, we could know salvation by no other means. Pride dug the hole that we are stuck in, and pride cannot dig us out. There is no saving ourselves. But when we're humbled, not claiming our rights, but thinking of others, serving selflessly in the ways that Jesus served and serves us, we start to get it, not clinging tightly to control. We sense the God who is in control clinging tightly to us. And through that kind of humility in our church, 
and in our families, at our work, and among our neighbors, that doesn't elevate our names. That elevates the name of Jesus. And that's just as it should be. Think about this. The God who crafted the mountains and imagined the oceans thought it would be a good idea to step down from a heavenly throne surrounded by adoration to take on mortal flesh to experience the degradation and cruelty from countless sides and he willingly offered himself as a sacrifice to redeem proud and sinful people who just weren't getting it. And each one of us must know whether we consider ourselves to be sinful or saintly, wise or wondering, that the God who crafted heaven and earth thought it would be right to step down from his throne and remind you through his humble and priceless sacrifice, you are loved. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't control it. The saving love of God's, which confounds our understanding, must be accepted as a gift through acknowledgement of our desperate need. It leaves no room for boasting about anything but Christ. Our self-righteousness can only be replaced by gratitude. And that humility puts pride to death in our lives. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we are so thankful that though we, we try to build ourselves up we, we have this strange sand-like foundation that we try to use to tell ourselves that we're enough, that we're sufficient, that we have what it takes. And God, we, we build up this flimsy foundation that's, that's based on pride. It's based on our, our own achievements, whether they are anything close to worthy or not. But Lord, the firm foundation for our dignity is that you have claimed us as your own. You've called us your children, your friends. You've shown us remarkable love. You've offered us the opportunity to share that love with others as well. What a powerful gift, God. What a wonderful way to destroy the pride in our lives and allow us to know what it is to rely fully on you. Lord, we thank you for the goodness the humility that Christ has shown to us. Not only is he our example, but he is our salvation in the name in which we place all of our hope. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. All in Jesus' name. Amen.